Well, good morning, church family. As Pastor Tom has already communicated to you, but I want to just say, also say it is really good to be home. Um, as I get to share, uh, every time we get an opportunity uh, to travel another place and to rub shoulders with other brothers and sisters in Christ, I always find it an incredible honor and privilege to, uh, to meet other brothers and sisters that maybe I have never had a clue about up until that, po- uh, up until that moment. And at the same time, I get to go, wow, this is a preview of things to come. We get to spend eternity together, but it didn't have to wait till eternity. We get to start it now. And so uh, I know our time in India was no less uh, an experience such as that, where we got to rub shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ, literally on the other side of the globe. And um, I'll just put it this way. It was humbling. It was humbling because, as Pastor Tom kind of alluded to, um, to see people who are living out their faith in a very different context can't help but impact you. Um, I think Billy Graham said it, and I'll probably distort some of the details of it, but that doesn't matter. Billy Graham once was asked, you know, like, you know, again, we, we know who Billy Graham is. He had a, quite an impact, right, globally, nationally. He uh, did huge stadium revivals, and, and God used him to bring many people to, to faith in Jesus Christ, and we celebrate that. And uh, when he was kind of more on the tail end of his life, you know, he was asked about, you know, like, oh, you know, what do you most anticipate heaven, and what do you think it's going to be like? And he says, you know, honestly, I've had this incredible ministry given to me by God to impact many people. But when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like the 90th road back. And it's like, well, who's going to be the 90 rows in front of you? And he's like, all the prayer warriors, all the people that kind of the unsung heroes, the people that were not known, the people that know, that did not have a national stage or global stage to sit on. Those are the people that are going to be in the, in the front rows, the best seats in the house. And as I think about kind of Billy Graham's testimony to, you know, at least his perspective, I can't help but also think the same thing as we travel to India and there's multiple surrounding countries represented in these trainings. And I walk away going, wow, I am humbled. I'm sobered in my faith. Because although I feel like I have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, at the same time, I watch brothers and sisters in Christ that live it out in a very different context. And again, the backgrounds, it's not to make us feel guilty by any, by any sense of the word. It's not to make us feel at all kind of like, oh, we should feel sorry for the freedoms we have. No, praise God. They desire the freedoms that we have. They long for those freedoms, and yet here they are living it out one day at a time, faithful to the ministry that God has called them to. And so I just come back going, as much as we went to, to offer some strategic training for church planting, at the same time, I think both Pastor Tom and I can attest to this, we come away having received more than we gave because these brothers and sisters are so encouraging. And so there'll be more stories to come, and we'll be, able to, uh, uh, we'll be able to relay a lot of different interactions that we've had as the, as the Sundays progress. But uh, thank you for loaning us out for 
three long weeks. <laughs> it was a long week, long, long trip. It's good to be home, but it was incredible for what God did. This bumper video that you just saw uh, kind of set, kind of introduces. Kind of, we're, we're taking a time out of our series in First John, and we're going to be uh, starting our Advent series all the way through our Christmas Eve service. And to do that, I want to start off by sharing a story. In the summer of 2017, there were two commercial fishermen. John Aldridge and Anthony Sosinski, who set out to fish from Montauk, Long Island. And as they headed out to sea, about 40 miles offshore, Anthony was sleeping below deck while John started to kind of get things ready for the catch. And uh, while he was on deck getting things ready for the catch, he was pulling on a certain handle, you know, a certain winch handle, and he was pulling with all his might. And you know what salt water does to things, right? It kind of corrodes. No matter how good the equipment is, there's a constant need to keep things lubricated. Well, this particular winch handle was not very lubricated. He's pulling with all his might. Snap. Oh, shoot. He goes stumbling backwards. And guess what? He tumbles into the Atlantic Ocean. To make matters worse, the boat's GPS is controlling the motor, and it's still going. And Anthony, his fishing partner, is still below deck, snoozing away. And this guy's bobbing. John is bobbing in the ocean. I don't know what you would think at that moment when you resurface from the water, and you'd be like, I did not think this is how I was going to die. And here's John no doubt a thousand thoughts running through his mind, wondering what's going on. And as he sees this, the boat that he was once standing on top of, of cresting up and over the waves, only to eventually disappear, all kinds of ideas are running through his mind, going, what about my family? I wonder if Anthony's going to wake up anytime soon. Will I, be, will I be found? Is this how I'm going to die? John, having enough uh, emotional composure about himself, said, okay, you know what? Hold on a second. I, gotta ta- I, have, I have to have short goals to, to reach. And so he realizes the boots that he's wearing are you know, rubber boots, and he was able to actually take them off, and they, act- they acted as flotation devices. And so that was kind of a glimmer of hope. You know, I'm not bobbing here on my own, but there are ways in which I can stay above the surface of the water. So again, a flicker of hope. And as he reminisces about his family and wondering, you know, what's going to happen, it doesn't help with the fact that although he's celebrating one small glimmer of hope that these two sharks start swimming by about 15 off, 15 feet away from him, he's like, oh, that's how I'm going to die. Thankfully, fortunately, they're not interested in John. Maybe they're already fed. They're good. And they keep swimming by. Well, about four hours later, Anthony, of course, this is all known after the fact, Anthony wakes up only to find where in the world is John. And he looks and sees a broken handle on the deck of the boat and goes and knows exactly what happened. He's like, oh, this handle broke. John's not here. John's in the water. But John would have gotten things ready at a certain point because he knows at the depth that we're going to, he knows when things, he has to start kind of getting all the equipment ready. So thankfully, Anthony has some idea 
where in the ocean, the GPS coordinates, where they should have been or in the general area. And so he calls the Coast Guard. And of course, the Coast Guard initially, the commander says, you know what? The, the, the chance of survival is very bleak. So I just want to prepare you. We'll, we'll do our part, but the chance of survival is very bleak. Meanwhile, John is still floating. The current's taking him one way or the other. Thankfully, the current takes him beyond, kind of by a, a fishing uh, buoy, and he's able to grab onto it, and, and he's no longer reliant upon his own boots. And he sits there still wondering, like, well, this is, a, this is another glimmer of hope. I hope the Coast Guard comes. I hope my, my fishing partner turns around. And long story short, the Coast Guard finally does fly over, and they see Anthony splashing and waving on this, on this little fishing buoy, and ultimately this rescue diver jumps in and grabs John and says, hey, we've been looking for you for nine hours. And John says, I've been looking for you for 12. <laughs> and miraculously, John Aldridge survives. Talk about a story of survival, right? Even more, talk about an amazing story of hope because how many people would have mentally given up? Bobbing in the Atlantic Ocean, the water's cold. You've been sitting there for hours and you're wondering, I'm dead. And yet John, he held on to hope. But hope is sort of like that, I think. Hope isn't the, confidence of, isn't the confidence that you know exactly what's going to happen, but hope is the thought that maybe, just maybe, these boots will keep me afloat for a while longer. Hope is the thought that maybe a, I'll, I'll come by some debris. Oh, there just happens to be a fishing buoy that I can latch onto because I'm getting exhausted. Hope is the thought that maybe those sharks are not hungry in that moment. Hope is the thought that my fishing partner will take notice and call the Coast Guard. Let me ask you, what is hope for you? What does hope look like, look like in your life? Maybe hope for you is the first day you wake up and you can finally breathe again after a very stuffy night. I understand we're all going through the, the crud, Right? Maybe hope for you is the percentage that you do have to beat the cancer. Maybe hope for you is the the faint line on a stick when you've been struggling to get pregnant. Just maybe. Maybe hope for you is the first ray of sunshine through the window after a tearful and very difficult night. Maybe hope for you is hearing the words guess what, your child's going to be okay. The fact is, hope is what fuels our faith. And hope is what we get to celebrate this first Sunday of Advent. Now, you might not wonder, what is Advent? I mean, I've heard of the term perhaps, but what exactly is Advent? Well, actually, Advent is a season of hope, and the word literally means coming or, or arrival. It's a season that's marked by expectation. It's a season that's marked by waiting or anticipation. It's a season marked by longing. 
It's a season that really kind of connects the past with the present and the future, meaning that we get to celebrate looking back at the hope that came when Christ came to earth that first morning, that first evening 2,000 years ago. And it's also an anticipation of looking forward because we know that He promises to come back again. And so while Christmas, I don't need to convince you of this, but while Christmas is often marked by extreme busyness and unfortunate consumerism, Advent is an opportunity to prepare our hearts. It's an opportunity to help us focus on a greater story that is beyond ourselves. And that is the story of how God is redeeming the world to himself. In other words, Advent is a season of digging into the significance of Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's an opportunity to align ourselves with God's presence in our life and not just to be distracted by the presence we lay under the tree. And so wherever you are at on your spiritual journey, I invite you into this season for this entire month leading up to Christmas. And, uh, and we just, I just want to let you know that Advent is not just a celebration that, just, that, that, that celebrates that God is going to come and fix things in our life or God is going to come and fix things in our world, but Advent is really just a celebration that God comes. Not just for what he does, but the fact that he comes and he's present with us, that he is God with us, and that even in our darkness and in our pain and in the chaos of our lives and in the chaos of this world, he comes and he's present, and he makes a way forward. You know, the fact is, this is the way God has been working throughout the history of the world. You see, back in the beginning, God created everything, and he walked freely, and he talked freely and openly with Adam and Eve. You know the story, right? Most of you know this story. He was with us, and humanity enjoyed wholeness and intimacy with God. But again, you know the story. That didn't last very long. We don't know how long, but it didn't last very long. We see very quickly that Adam and Eve are tempted, and, they, and instead of obeying God, they chose to rebel against God, and therefore sin entered the world, and all the, the, the travesty and the tragedy and everything, the rift between God that now exists is because of Adam and Eve's choice thousands of years earlier. And as you and I well know, the brokenness that we experience in our lives and the, the chaos that we see on the forefront of our world is an ongoing result of that first decision to rebel. But realize also that in light of their choice to rebel and the, the havoc that sin has wreaked on God's creation, God has been working to restore and to renew and to heal and bring a sense of wholeness to His creation. And this is really the story of the Bible. You know, throughout the pages of Scripture, we see that God is making a way and, and He's reminding His people, hey, I'm at work. I haven't stopped working. I showed up and I'm present and I'm very much at work. We see this 
when God uh, reveals himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and reminds him in verses chapter 15 and also chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he reaffirms that promise in Genesis chapter 28 to Jacob at Bethel. Hey, don't forget the promise. Don't forget the covenant I made with your father Abraham. I'm going to do something. I'm very much at work. Of course, a lot of time passes. Years, generations, multiple centuries. And we as human beings... We struggle to wait, don't we? We're not a very patient people, are we? We're like, God, you said you were going to do something. Well, let's do it. Let's get after it. Where have you been? And then we see that God reminds his people, even though they're crying out, oh God, where are you? You know, they're saying, how long, O oh Lord, you've promised these things. There's an internal longing to make things right. Everything's broken. We're slaves. We are broken in our own personal lives as well as in our world. What are you going to do? Are the promises true? Are your covenants true? Will you come through and be faithful? And I love how God raises up men and women to remind his people, hey, I haven't forgot my promises. We see the prophet Isaiah, who's kind of a, a poster prophet for Advent. 700 years before the arrival of Jesus, God reminds his people through the prophet Isaiah. In a sense, Isaiah is like a, a voice of hope. Hey, I haven't forgotten you. I'm still very much at work. I'm still doing things. Wait. And so through the prophet Isaiah, we see in Isaiah 7, for example, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and the virgin will conceive and give a birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, he says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I mean, can you imagine hearing these words, right? It's been silent for a very long time, and all of a sudden the prophet Isaiah says, hey, guess what? God has not forgotten you. God is still very much at work he hasn't stopped. He hasn't forgotten. He's not distant. He is present. He's not distracted. He has never stopped working, even though we may not have eyes to see it. And so we see that through the prophet Isaiah and many other prophets. He fuels their hope. He restores their confidence. Hey, watch and wait. Things are happening. And we see that not too long later, well, a while later, still waiting, we see that in Luke's gospel that Zechariah the priest, who had been well acquainted with the, the prophet Isaiah and the promises that 
were given through Isaiah, we see that Zechariah the priest was a righteous and blameless man, and he was a spiritual leader for the people of Israel. And he no doubt had the same longings that Israel had. He knew the promises. He knew the covenant. He was waiting patiently. And Zechariah would have been most shocked because out of the blue on one ordinary day when he was going about his priestly duties, God drops kind of this mega dose of hope. An angel appears to him and says, hey, it's happening in your lifetime. Things are getting ready. Things have been ramping up. And it's happening. And guess what? You're going to have a son. And he's going to prepare the way. He's going to come in the power of Elijah. And he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Again, Zechariah knew the prophecies. I don't think he lost faith. But little did he know that God was using him and his wife Elizabeth to be a precursor to things that were long ago promised. Now, of course, Zechariah kind of struggled to receive the message. You know the story. Because Zechariah, much like Abraham and Sarah, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were not spring chickens. They were elderly. They were beyond the, the birthing years. And so Zechariah is going, well, that would take a miracle. Exactly. Everything that God does is miraculous. And even though he doubted and even though God made him mute for a short time, which you think about it, I'm the priest representing the people, and now I can't even speak, we see that God uses Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they bear a son named John, who is later known as John the Baptist. The one, the voice calling out in the wilderness, make way for the Lord. Now, just to kind of step back a second here, this promise that the angel gave to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth would have been very difficult because, again, they had tried to have kids, no doubt, and they would have been walking around with a stigma over their heads because even though they were considered upright and blameless and righteous in the eyes of people, we also notice that we know that because of that culture and that context, that it would have been a very difficult reality to navigate through. Because you know, even though people are going, yeah, you guys are great, but you know, you don't have any kids. So who sinned? Or maybe there's a curse in the family. Yeah, Zachariah, Elizabeth, you're great people and all, but I don't know. Someone did something somewhere at some time. But ultimately, we see that what transpired in their lives and through their lives was all according to God's preordained plan. And now there's a renewed glimmer of hope. Because the fact is, the old prophecies are about to be fulfilled. The one prophesied to come in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Messiah is now coming. God is moving to restore hope that he is still here and among us. No doubt, Zechariah, as I just said, and Elizabeth, and all the people that are starting to hear this are going, wait a second, it's happening now in my lifetime? Hope is alive. 
Hope on earth is alive again. Now, maybe some of you are thinking in here this morning, Aaron, that's nice. Good for the people of Israel. Good for Zachariah and Elizabeth. Good job, Isaiah. But what does that have to do with me? What does this hope for them have to do with hope for me? Were they fighting cancer like I am right now? Did they lose a spouse recently? Did their child die? Is their marriage on the verge of divorce with no glimmer of, uh, of change? Are they in financial ruin with kids expecting presents under the tree and no financial means to make that possible? What does this have to do with me? Let me just say this, that no matter what kind of problems or struggles that you may be facing right now, no matter what kind of season that you may find yourself in, whether it be a season of pain or or just kind of a dark night of the soul for you, I just want to encourage you in this way. Do not abandon hope. May you not become hopeless in your fight of faith. The fact is, as we see throughout the pages of Scripture, and as a testimony to our own lives, hope is always still alive, even in the deepest pain and the most hopeless circumstances. Because, and the reason is because God is with us. You are not alone. He is ever-present with you right now. How do you know this? How do you and I know this? How can we cling to this hope when we're on the verge of giving up in our lives, perhaps? Well, I think, for one, we are able to cling to this hope because hope is based on God's Word to us, not on our feelings within us. The hope that we cling to is not dependent upon our feelings. It's dependent upon God's word and his promises to us. Part of me, what it means that God is now with us is the fact that his written word is through the written word that he has left for us. Scripture is really God's revelation of himself and his promises to his people both long ago as well as for us today. His words to us are really beacons of hope. They're glimmers of, I'm working. I've never stopped working. They're reminders of us that, 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 really, that with the intention of really penetrating our hearts so that no matter what we are facing in our, in our lives at this moment, no matter how bleak tomorrow may look, No matter how bad the pain is, we can know one thing for very certain, that God will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. I love what David said in Psalm 139, right? He says, where can I go from your spirit? 
Rhetorical question, by the way. Where can I go from your spirit? Where where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle from the, on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. I love that. Your right hand will hold me fast. I'm looking at Seth right now. I love that song. He will hold me fast. We need to sing that again. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. I mean, can you feel kind of the the emphasis in those words, right? Can you feel the hope in those words? You're not alone, even if you feel like you are. God is ever-present with you right now. And as we move through Advent, my encouragement to each and every one of us is to dig into the words of Scripture with expectation. To dig in with expectation that God is going to reconfirm His presence and His care for you. But there's a second reason that we cling to hope. We cling to hope because hope is based on God's character, on who He is. Hope is rekindled when we focus on who He is and what He promises to be in our lives. You know, there's a story in, in Mark chapter 5 about a woman. We don't even really know her name. Not really, we don't know her name. But she stands out on the pages of Scripture, especially in Mark's gospel, and, and it's a, really a story of hope for us. You see, this woman, she has had this physical problem for 12 years, this bleeding problem for 12 years. And she's tried all the doctors. She's tried every opportunity. She's she's pursued every avenue possible to make things right. And guess what? She's only worse as a result. Can you imagine the defeat that she must be experiencing? Can you, can you imagine the kind of the, the depression that must be sinking in going, I've tried everything that is known or possible, every experimental drug out there, every experimental procedure, and my life is worse by the end of it. Sounds pretty hopeless, right? And then she hears about this person named Jesus. Jesus seems to be walking through town. I've, I've heard of this guy named Jesus. I've heard that he's a healer. I've heard that he can perform miracles. That he doesn't just spend time with the most popular people, but he, he hangs out with the, the outcast and the downcast. And he just so happens to be coming through my town. And so she thinks to herself, man, if only I can get close to him. 
I got to make, I got to be really subtle. I got to be very discreet about this because, again, having this problem not only isolates her relationally, but it ostracizes her spiritually. She is no, she is ceremonially unclean. She can't even go to the temple to worship. So she is literally removed from everything that we get to experience usually on a daily basis. She is absolutely alone. But she's like, if I can just get through the crowd and touch the fringe of his garment, oh, my life will be changed. And she has this bold hope, and she just navigates through the crowds, and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus stops. Uh oh. And Jesus asks this kind of audacious question Who who touched me? Which the disciples, of course, a little bit confused, going like, what are you talking about? Who touched you? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. You're in this mob. Everybody's trying to get closer and closer. Everybody is sandwiching you in. Everybody's touching you right now. And you're asking, somebody touched me? No, he says, no, power went out from me. And so he stops. And no doubt, in that moment, the woman's probably thinking a thousand different things, right? Oh, shoot, I screwed up. I've been found out. I'm not even supposed to be here. I'm not even supposed to be in this crowd. I can't touch anybody because that makes them unclean. And now I'm getting put on a pedestal here in all the wrong ways. And Jesus stops. And she finally comes forward. It was me. Probably real timidly and very fearfully. And instead of common condemnation, instead of rebuke, We see that Jesus connects with her, connects with her heart, calls her a daughter, and her life is made whole, and she's forever redeemed. In fact, this is who our God is. This is his character. We see that Jesus is the one who is worthy. He was and he still is God with us. We see that he fulfilled Israel's hope for the Messiah when he arrived that first Christmas. We see that he fulfilled humanity's hopes and victory over death when he resurrected that first Easter. We see that one day, and we know from what has already been, has been prophesied about that one day he will return again and complete everything he has already begun to do. This is why he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. So we cling to hope because of his promises to us. We cling to hope because that is his character. But thirdly, we cling to hope because hope is based on God's faithfulness. We hope because God is faithful. Let me ask you a question, not to answer out loud, but just to chew on or reflect on. How has God worked in your life lately? How has he worked in your life? And let me just kind of take it one step further. What are those moments and what are those memories that you, when you look back on and you reflect on, you can only make one conclusion, God sustained me. 
God was there for me. I was not alone. I would have thrown in the towel. I would have given up. But God was there. And he comforted me. And he brought salve to the pain. And he brought comfort when I was afraid. What are those moments for you? You might ask the question, well, what do those memories have to do with hope? What do those memories have to do with my here and and now, my current circumstances? Well, I think they have everything to do with this, that when you look back on God's past faithfulness, it fuels your hope for God's continued faithfulness in your life. You see, when we look back at God's past faithfulness, and when we're able to conclude, wow, God, you are incredible, you are amazing, and we respond with gratitude and thanksgiving, it continues to foster hope because one day God will continue to do that. He's been faithful in the past. Will he stop being faithful now? No. I love what Jeremiah the prophet, as he writes in Lamentations chapter 3, I don't know if you've read Lamentations recently, probably not your go-to, Who likes to to read about lament and mourning and sorrow, right? There's an uplift. But it's actually a great book. And in kind of the middle of of the book of Lamentations, we see that after Jeremiah decries the sorrows and the pain and the suffering and the struggle, he says this in Lamentations 3.21. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Sounds like a hymn, right? I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of of the Lord. Did you guys catch that? Did you, did you get how, le- you know, in the midst of lamenting the sorrows and the sin of the people of Israel, yet at the, right in the sandwich in the middle, Jeremiah the prophet says this, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Again, Jeremiah understood that there is hope in the future when we remember God's past faithfulness. He's never let me down prior to this moment. Will he now let me down? No. Because that's not who he is. And so gratitude renews and grows our hope in God. It nurtures a living hope that sustains us even in the darkest of days and the struggles of life. You know, one of the ways in which we are called to remember God's past faithfulness is by regularly celebrating the sacrament of communion. You know, Jesus instituted this sacrament so that we would not only remember what God has already done for us, but so that it would instill a patient but expectant hope for his divine work in our lives and in this world. And so we look back 
with joyful remembrance and, and humble gratitude and, and genuine repentance as what, as what Jesus accomplished on the cross for our sins. And in so doing, we are reminded that God isn't done. It's not yet complete. Yes, when he decried on the cross, it is finished. He he accomplished everything we needed. Death has been defeated. The grave is no longer our ultimate destiny. But one day it will all be fully consummated when he comes back again one glorious day. But until that time, we celebrate what he has already accomplished on the cross. We remember his past faithfulness, knowing that his past faithfulness is indicative of his future faithfulness to us. 